Okay. I'm happy to introduce Dr. Chris Jenkins, who's here to speak to us today. He works at Sandia National Labs. Uh, so he got his bachelor's degree from UIUC and did his PhD at Wisconsin-Madison. Uh, and at Sandia, he focuses on cybersecurity, um, two specific areas really. So assessments for government customers looking at uh, device analysis and vulnerability analysis and design flaws. And his second area is on moving target defense, uh, which is what he's here to talk to us about today. Um, so I will let him take it away. Thank you. So good evening, I was gonna say good afternoon. So this work is on moving target defense and particularly for mill standard 1553. This work was conducted by myself, Eric Vugren, who's also a colleague at Sandia National Labs, and two interns, so Sarah um, at University of Michigan and Grant at Tennessee Tech. So the way this talk is going to go today, I'm going to the intro and, and describe a little bit about why this work is being done, describe moving target defense and some background on the mill standard 1553. We'll look at the algorithm that we have come up with, the experimentation to prove out the algorithm, the results, and then also speak about some future work which we intend to conduct here at Purdue University. So first question, why are we conducting this work? So MIL standard 1553 is used in a variety of applications. So anything from weapons to, to jets to helicopters, space systems, so on and so forth. And it was a protocol created in the late 1970s. And as you can see on the slide, it doesn't support authentication or encryption. And so you can think in the late 1970s, this was not a concern. But as more of these platforms connect to networks, there's a concern that they could potentially be attacked. And so we wanted to look at, can we integrate moving target defense with the MIL standard 1553 protocol, or 1553 for short, and increase the cyber resilience of platforms which use the protocol. So two key research questions. One, can it be implemented in a way that maintains operational constraints? And we'll get to what those constraints are. And then also, can we provide quantitative evidence that moving target defense does improve resilience? And so the talk for today will focus on the first question and we'll provide some preliminary results. So how many people by a quick show of hands are familiar with moving target defense? Okay, so, so, so a few people. So moving target defense, by its name, is actually this being able to dynamically reconfigure your environment. So you can do it from a networking standpoint, you can do it from a software standpoint, I'm changing the OS on the fly, I'm changing the potential web server on the fly. You can also even do moving target defense in hardware and typically using FPGAs, which is some work I've actually done when I was in grad school. But for our work, we're actually going to use moving target defense for, at the network level, in particular on nine IP networks. So there's a lot of research in the IP space where you are dynamically changing the IP address so that if someone's trying to attack a web server and they come back, that web server has moved to a particular different address. So some of the previous work for moving target defense, so here we have Mayflies, which was done by Professor Bargava here at Purdue University, and it's looking at a bio-inspired genetic MTD framework for cloud computing. The next two papers, Chavez and Jones, were actually colleagues at Sandia. Chavez looked at determining the effectiveness of MTD for microgrids, but once again, looking at it on IP-based networks. And then Jones was looking at game theory to see when does it make sense to use MTD versus using a static configuration. 
And Ferris also has done some work in moving target defense, but that particular work was more looking at qualitative comparisons as opposed to, as opposed to quantitative comparisons. And right before I actually gave this presentation, to our knowledge, MTD had not been used in non-IP networks, but believe it or not, one of my interns this summer sent me a paper last Wednesday from South Korea, and it actually was a paper using moving target defense for the CAN bus, and they called it CAN ID shuffling technique, or SIST. So to give you a little bit of a background of how the CAN bus works, so it's a fairly simple bus. On, on my left side, you have the bus controller, typically a backup bus controller. The bus controller exact, does exactly what it says. It controls the bus. It, it tells when someone can speak, when someone cannot speak. You have a bus monitor, which is another way to say it's a data logger. It logs all activity which occurs in the bus. And then you have a remote terminal, which actually implements some functionality. And so the bus has three different word types. So at the very top, you have what's called bit times. So every word, command word, data word, and a status word, occupies 20 bit times. And for this particular bus, it's one microsecond, it's one bit time, and the bus runs at one megahertz. So if you look at the command word, it has a remote terminal address of five bits. And so for our work, we want to dynamically change that particular field and see how that actually improves or decreases cyber resilience on a bus. Data word, you have 16 arbitrary bits. And then the status word also has a remote terminal address, so that field will also have to change. And then you have various flags that indicate whether or not there's a problem with the particular remote terminal. So to show you a particular message, in this case, we have a BC to RT message. So this is the bus controller sending data to remote terminal. So if you look at, I believe it's the blue line, you have 3-R-1-32. And once you work with this bus a lot, uh, you begin to decode that rather quickly. So this says remote terminal three, I want you to receive some words at sub-address one, and these are the 32 words that I want you to receive, and in this particular case, those 32 words are highlighted in green. And then at the bottom blue line, you have an STS, which is a status word, which says remote terminal three, everything is okay. And so now looking at the reverse, where an RT is going to send information to the bus controller, the bus controller still sends out the command word, in this case it's 2-T-2-32. So remote terminal 2, I want you to transmit information to me at sub-address 2, and I want you to send me the 32 words at that sub-address, once again highlighted in green. So given that that's a brief introduction in terms of how 1553 works, we wanted to show you now the algorithm that we've come up with and then show you how it applies to this particular protocol. So there are some key considerations for looking at 1553, Cannabis, and similar non-IP-based protocols. So the first is that these protocols are developed typically to monitor some real process. So think about your car, right? If you push the brakes, you expect your car to stop within a fraction of a second. So these are the protocols that typically implement those type of systems and that type of functionality. So they have to be deterministic, predictable, reliable, and have real-time deadlines. They have to work. And so one of our constraints that typically is not present in IP-based protocols 
is that real-time operation as opposed to best effort, which is in the IP networks. The second one, dynamic address generation. So if I have two nodes on a bus, or 16 nodes, or 32,000 nodes, and their address changes, it has to change to an address that no one else occupies. And preferably, this all happens at the same time. Doesn't have to, but preferably, everybody can change their address and there's no collisions. If someone does lose their dynamic address, can they real quickly or efficiently um, resynchronize with the bus controller or whatever mechanism you have on the bus? Given that this particular protocol only has five bits for its address, 32 possibilities, does that provide enough entropy such that an adversary can't guess the particular address you're at? What about periodicity? So let's say I'm hopping around, am I actually going to have a period that's very short? And if it is very short, if someone can detect that, you now have lost the benefit of moving target defense. And then the last one, if I send out a command, how do you know that it is authentic? Because these buses and these protocols don't have, typically don't have authentication and encryption. And so we're going to also add a way to have authenticity on our particular commands. And so real briefly, I'm going to discuss a patent-pending uh, patent novel algorithm that we've come up with for 1553. So just by a quick show of hands, how many people here are familiar with HMAC or cryptography? Okay, so a few more people. So the way our algorithm works, we start with the nonce that is sent out by the bus controller, and we have a shared key, which is shared, or I should say shared key, which is shared by all the participants or participating nodes on the bus that wants to utilize MTD. So some nodes do, not all nodes have to participate, but the ones that do participate have to have a shared key in our particular algorithm. So we pass that into a keyed hash algorithm, or in particular a keyed message authentication code, in this case 512, which puts out 512 bits or 64 bytes. And the way that we break that up is the first 31 bytes a 30-second byte, and then the last 32 bytes. And we'll show in the next few slides how they are used. So we take the first 31 numbers, and we mod 32 for each byte, because we only have 32 possible addresses. Now, in 1553, we can't use address 31, because that is reserved for the broadcast per protocol specification. So we have to make sure that each byte is really mod 31, and then additionally, that once we actually get a byte, it's not equal to any previous byte. And that guarantees a random, unique ordering of the numbers 0 through 30. On the other half of the screen, we take the last 32 numbers, we cut them into halves, so 16 bytes and 16 bytes, we XOR them, and we get an answer out. So taking that answer that we just got out, we take that 30-second byte, and we do a circular rotate on integer or four, four bytes at a time. Left, right, left, right. And that's arbitrarily chosen. It could be a different combination. And then we get out a new knot. And then to produce another array, we do that again with that new knot, which produces an additional knot, so on and so forth, so on and so forth, such that you can produce arbitrary arrays or we call arbitrary rounds to form your state matrix. So a quick way how you would use this, if I sent you an index of four and your node address was zero, your dynamic address in this particular case would be zero, 
But if your static node address was one with an index of four, your dynamic address would be 16, so on and so forth for every single node on the network. And once again, you can have infinite number of arrays based on the algorithm that we've come up with. And so the first question I usually get is you have, 30, you have five bits, which is 32 addresses. 31 because we can't use the broadcast. And so given this method, if we have n addresses for the first slot, n minus one addresses for the second slot, n minus two addresses for the third slot, you have n factorial possible unique orderings, which we, which we think should be sufficient entropy um, using this algorithm. So now that we have a little bit of knowledge of how the algorithm works, how would you use it in practice? So the bus controller, once again, controls the bus. It would actually say, okay, nodes on the bus or devices on the bus, here's my nonce. I want you to start using moving target defense and create your state matrix. And then we also have a way, and we'll show this later on in the presentation, where you can verify that the nodes on the bus actually have the same state as the bus controller without actually putting that state on the bus. What we do put on the bus is an index so that everybody can switch synchronously at the same time. You can also regenerate a new state matrix, and then worst come to worst, if something goes wrong, you can also um, reset back to your static mapping and turn off moving target defense. So really, our experimentation that we're going to describe in the next couple of slides, excuse me, later on in this presentation, is really given this algorithm, can we actually run it on the bus in real time and meet our constraints? But before we get to experimentation, we want to do some more work with the algorithm. And so what you have in front of you is a histogram of node zero. So what we did is for 65,536 times, we generated 65,000 arrays. For the first array, we said given slot zero, or index zero, uh, excuse me, I want to say the word cell zero, what is the dynamic address? We put that into a bucket. Now let's move to index or the second array, cell zero. Let's put that into a different bucket and do that for 65,536 times. And you get the histogram that you see in front of you. And one thing that sticks out to us, number one, you do actually go through all possible addresses, which we think is a good thing. But node zero tends to be more times than none um, an ad a dynamic address of zero. So the first thing we thought about was, was that does that apply to other addresses? So here we look at node eight and we see that it does not necessarily apply to other addresses. Node eight does not favor a dynamic address of a value of eight. In this case, it favors more of address of 22, 23 and higher. So if we look at all of them combined, we can see that there's some non-uniformity and that certain nodes may favor certain addresses more often than others. And we'll get to that um, in a few slides on the summary. So we looked at a few more data points for this algorithm. So here we have the elapsed time. So to generate 65,000 matrix, excuse me, 65,000 arrays, it takes around 19 seconds. And as you generate less, it takes less time. And then we look at the time it takes to generate one round or one array, on average, in a steady state mode, it takes around 283 microseconds. And then looking at the space for this, if you wanted to have 
a stated rate of 65,536, it takes around two megabytes. Now there are some microcontrollers which do have less than two megabytes, so that may not be an option, but we think at two megabyte, most devices will have space for a state array. So given what I've shown you about the algorithm, one thing that we've learned is that not all addresses are created equal. It's definitely non-uniform, with some dynamic addresses popping up more than others. But given enough time, all addresses will be used. And so what we may do in the future is look at a different primitive. So once again, this is based on HMAC, or a keyed message authentication code. We could look at symmetric ciphers such as AES, DES. We can look at a, a, a non-symmetric cipher or something that's different, like a linear feedback shift register. Another option, all these histograms were based on moving from zero to 65,000. What if we randomize that value? Does that histogram um, have the same look? Is it more uniform or is it less uniform? And the last two kind of go together. So you could generate the state on the fly, but given that a round takes 283 microseconds, we suggest to actually generate everything ahead of time. But if you don't have the amount of space, so you don't have two megabytes in your microcontroller, another option is that you, since we generate a nonce every single round, you could actually have intermediate nonces. So you can start with your nonce from the first that you got from the bus controller, then maybe the 16th nonce you keep, maybe the 32nd nonce you keep, and then in between you can generate those arrays on the fly. So you can save space at the cost of computation. But we, we would say that if you have the space, it's easy to say, let's consume two megabytes and then just move the pointer around as necessary. It should be much faster. So now let's speak a little bit to the experimentation. So this work was done this past summer. And so to keep it very simple, we wanted to calculate the Fibonacci sequence using a bus controller and a single remote terminal with and without moving target defense. So the bus controller sends out two numbers, the remote terminal adds them up, and then it sends it back. And so a question some people ask is why the 24th Fibonacci number? And I'll just throw it out there. Does anybody know why we picked that particular number? So the reason why is it's actually the largest positive number that can fit into 16 bits. And since these words on the protocol are 16 bits long, we wanted to just keep it simple and stop at that number. But we did add a, an ability to calculate the Fibonacci number sequence over and over in order to generate more messages. And so for this particular experiment, we ran it where we would actually send out an MTD update every frame, every two frames, 10 frames, 50 frames, so on and so forth. Phase two is actually what we're doing right now at Sandia. And so we're gonna look at, look at can we corrupt the calculation of the Fibonacci number and we would assume that without moving target defense, you can corrupt it. But with moving target defense, can you corrupt it? And if you can, does it stay corrupted? Or is it actually a temporal event that happens? But once again, we're focusing today on phase one, the calculation. And so for our experimentation or a test bed, we have a laptop or desktop running Alta DT software called Alta View. 
we have an Ethernet switch, and it connects to the two devices known as ENET-1553, and I have a screenshot of it in the next slide. So on one device, or one logical channel, I should say, we have a bus controller remote terminal, and on the other channel, we have a bus monitor, which again, just listens and collects the data so that we know what's going on in the bus, and then they're connected to each other through the 1553 bus. And so here is an actual ENET2 device. This, this is, I believe, a full function device. So we were able to do our experimentation using just one of these devices. One channel will implement the bus controller and the remote terminal, and the second channel will actually be our bus monitoring to know what's going on. So given the algorithm, um, given the Alta DT, and given our setup, we want to be able to turn on and off MTD at our leisure. So the way that we start the MTD, we have an MTD start command, which going back to the way um, 1553 is usually specified, we have 31-R-1-8. So 31 is the broadcast address. It's telling all devices that are participating to receive this information as sub-address 1, and these are the eight data words that I'm going to send, which represent the 128-bit knots then the bus controller can ask individual nodes, before I start MTD, I want to make sure everybody has the same state. Then if they all have the same state, then we can send out what's called an MTD update command, which is a 16-bit number, or one data word, which actually is the index for all the devices to switch to. And then, of course, a stop, which actually turns off MTD. In 1553, you cannot have a command word without a data word. So even though the data word doesn't matter, it has to be present. And even for our experimentation, we did not add authentication um, just due to the accelerated schedule we had during the summer. But you could add a HMAC 256 to these messages, and that would, um, excuse me, that would give you the uh, excuse me, authentication you were looking for that we mentioned earlier as being one of the design constraints. So when we were actually doing the MTD update command, one thing we noticed is that the way that we chose to do it arbitrarily is that we're given an index, and then the cell that we pick is based on the static address. And that's method number one here in the slide. But what we realized is that there are also other ways to do it. In this case, we call it method number two, you have less arrays. In this case, your state matrix has 1,024 arrays. But you have a multiplier and an adder. So instead of having that static cell that you're going to access in that array, it allows you the freedom to move up and down as you see fit. So you may have a smaller state matrix, but you can move around and consume more of it. So here we have a bus controller on one side, remote terminal on the other side. And this gives you a really quick rundown of how the experimentation went about. You do MTD start, send out the knots, then the bus controller, excuse me, the bus controller can ask for the hash of the state matrix. So once you know that it actually has the matching hash, you know that it has your equivalent state. You send out numbers one and one, value two comes back. Then at some point, you have an MTD update command that changes the address of the remote terminal. The bus controller sends the values five and eight to the new address. Value 13 comes back, you go on and on and on until you get to B520 in hex, which is the 24th Fibonacci number and the hexadecimal value, and then we stop the computation. 
So here we have a start, a verify, an update, in our case, uh, finished, which is not a command, but it's to show that it actually finished. So once again, for the MTD start command, we have 128-bit nonce. Um, that is sent in eight data words. The verify sends back, hey, this is my hash, and if it matches, then we can start using MTD. So then the MTD update sends out a value of 17 in hex, and then we can also show that we get to B520, which is kind of our termination marker for our simulation. And so just to prove that it actually works, so here we have a, a screenshot of some data that came off the bus monitor. I have in the circles the address, and then we have in the blue box the value before, and then I guess in the orange box the value afterwards. So in the blue box, we have remote terminal 1, receive as subaddress 4 a value of 2. We send two values, 2 and 3. And then we tell that same particular device, remote terminal address 1, send me back the answer. So we get back the value of five. So now we say, okay, you know what? I want everybody to go to the new address. So I'm gonna have an index of 17 in hex, and as you can see on the screen, we had a remote terminal address of one in the blue box, and now that address has changed to 27. And what we're arguing is that by sending the value of 17, it tells you nothing about what is going to be the new address. So you send out the values two and three, you get back five, now you send out the values three and five, but you get back zero. That's not right. Can anybody guess what's happening? Three plus five is what? A little bit louder? Okay, we, we, we have to do university now. <laughs> so what happened is that whenever you take something that's an algorithm on a piece of paper and you put it into a physical embodiment, there are things you have to worry about. So in our case, we have a bus that's running on the order of a megahertz. We have messages which are coming out 20, 20 microseconds, 40 microseconds. And just to go back and look at some of these numbers, 64.5 microseconds, 84.5 microseconds. But the latency to actually write to the ENET device is on the order of 200, 300 microseconds. So you can kind of easily see what is the issue. And so what we realize is that even though it's pretty fast to do a computation, the time to actually write it to the ENET was taking longer, something that we didn't anticipate, so we had to implement flow control. Because of the way the API worked, we had to implement polling-based interrupts, and every time you go to the device to, to, to read the interrupt queue, to read the particular buffer you're interested in, that's more and more latency. So something that we had to take into account the non-empty buffers during wraparound, as long as you do the Fibonacci sequence one time, it's not an issue. But once you do it twice, three, four times, those buffers are not cleared. So if I send it two and three, and it has the value 45,000, 45,000 is coming back, throws off your Fibonacci calculation. So all of these can be addressed with code, but there's things that we just didn't anticipate that we had to be mindful of. As I mentioned earlier, Bus monitor, remote terminal, bus controller, it's all being implemented on the same device. And while we don't believe that's an issue, we were on a gigabit ethernet switch, we still want to run some of these experiments using different laptops just to see if anything changes. And so to push the MTD envelope, we've actually just recently purchased from the same company, so we can reuse our code base, a PCI Express card. And according to the developer, 
instead of 200 microseconds, it's taking about one microsecond to do the interrupt. And then as we said before, use different computers to implement different functionalities to make sure that the IP um, stack should not present an issue for us. So what are the results? So we do successfully compute 24th Fibonacci number, and it takes 44 messages to compute that number. As you probably can tell, there's not a lot of data analysis you can do with 44 messages. So we wanted to generate more, and so we were able to wrap around and generate arbitrary number of messages. In our case, we stopped at 1,000, which gave us I believe around 44,000 messages, but you could go up as far as possible. In our case, up to uh, 65,536, as you probably can guess. We're able to implement verification of the state, which is done before you begin the moving target defense. And doing the end-to-end -end simulation with or without MTD, it's about 40 microseconds required on the bus. But if you add authentication, it's probably going to go up to around 500 microseconds. But given that we had issues with flow control and latency, we wanted to make sure that all of our numbers were based purely on moving target defense and not on issues with the API or the physical embodiment. So for our experimentation to calculate the overhead, we had a 20 millisecond delay after uh, MTD update command, and between the receive and transmit command, we had a 10 millisecond delay so any additional messages would be purely due to turning on moving target defense. And so for an MTD frequency of one frame, in our particular experiment, a frame is two messages. We have 50% overhead, which makes a lot of sense. Two messages, you now have three messages, 50% overhead. But if you move up to 100 frames, you can get down to less than a percent overhead, which given our engagement with other institutions, we believe that probably between 50 and 100 messages or frames would make sense to actually add an MTD update. If I had to design it, I would say after every um, minor frame, put in an MTD update command, but definitely after every major frame, put in an MDT, uh, MTD update command, and it actually would keep all the no nodes on the bus in sync just by default. Because just because you send an MTD update command does not mean you have to change the index. You can just keep it there as a way to keep all your devices in sync, in sync, excuse me, but it doesn't give you any more information about what the next address is going to be. So some of the future work we're looking at, as I mentioned earlier, phase two, we're going to add a rogue node. And we're going to see, can this rogue node disrupt the Fibonacci count? And we may even come up with some additional experimentation, but the reason why the graphic is here is that typically when you are compromised, the adversary wins, right? Your mission, in this case, mission delivery goes from green to red. What we want to know is that by adding moving target defense, can we lessen that impact and potentially recover where the adversary now has a smaller window to actually do potential damage, or if damage is done, can the impact of that be reduced and potentially recover back to full mission delivery? So that's really the idea that we're trying to accomplish with uh, moving target defense. So some more future work. So here we have a two-year research program, um, Sandia that is gonna take care of, and they're going to, excuse me, we're gonna use some of that funding money 
to work with Professor Bargava. And we're also going to look at two additional protocols, one being space wire. So this, like I said earlier, this, this protocol, excuse me, is used in satellite systems. And then also look at CAN bus. And even though CAN bus is typically associated with your vehicle, it's used in satellites and other SCADA systems as well. And then Air Inc. A25 is a military protocol, but its underlying protocol is the CAN bus. And so phase one for the work with Professor Bargava is that we're going to give him access to the logs and then through his students, we're going to ask them, can you figure out from the logs, what can you figure out about the state matrix? Can you predict the next address? Can you predict a hopping pattern? And then for phase two, we're also going to look at ways that you can tweak the algorithm for CAN bus and for SpaceWire, and as always, um, look at potential conference publications. So moving forward, like I said, we bought the PCI Express card to push the MTD envelope. Our experimentation dealt with one node. We want to add in multiple nodes. Maybe three are using MTD, two are using static addressing, and see what happens, look at some more metrics. A colleague of mine brought up something that they thought would be interesting. Right now, each RT can see the entire state. They felt it would be interesting if I can only see my state and my addresses, and I can't see anything else, but I still don't collide with anyone, uh, anyone else's address. And if you have the answer to that, I would definitely love to speak with you afterwards. Also look at some generic improvements to the algorithm. Once again, this is for 1553. We want to use the algorithm for other protocols. And then, as I said earlier, how should it change for not only SpaceWire and CAN bus, but other non-IP protocols that may exist. So I just want to say thank you for your time. Any questions? Yes. Uh, I have a small question. Uh, so um, in terms of generic improvements for the algorithm, uh, uh, during the verif verification phase, you said you were using the HMAC 512. Uh, correct. So correct me, if my, correct me if I'm wrong, it's a variant of SHA. It's, uh, it's based on the standard hash Correct. algorithm. Uh, so say, could we maybe use, say, uh, the Blake uh, hash function, where, which is, uh, I've, I've read personally that it could be faster on software. Yeah, so you, you make can 512? use uh, SHA-512, 256, SHA-3, um, block cipher, you can use a stream cipher. So you definitely have other options that you want to use. And the way that we created the algorithm if you can reduce 64 bytes, it should fit into the existing data flow, if that makes sense. Okay. But yes, we could use Blake or any other algorithm that makes sense. But uh, usually in the verification phase, uh, would it significantly improve the time taken? So what do you mean by time taken? Uh, like the, uh, the overhead, would it make a big difference? So, so when I present it, so referring to the overhead chart, so in this case, it would not. So the overhead in the chart is due to having an MTD message present, an MTD update message present, versus not having an MTD update message. So the actual start and the verify command, we do use them, 
but the actual overhead cost is due to having these additional MTD messages. Um, more, what it would help though, just to be, to be fair, if you did attach a HMAC256 to the MTD update command, you could generate that message quicker, I would say. But you can also pre-compute it as well. But great question. I had a quick question. I was curious, how do you do the uh, symmetric key sharing for that? Are they hard-coded in? Are you doing uh, you know, key derivation? How are you doing the key sharing for that? And is it dynamically updated? Is notes come and go? How does that work? Sure. So uh, key management is already something we love to punt on. <laughs> it's always a hard problem. Yep. <laughs> so, so one option is it, it could be hard-coded. And so that could be through something like a PUF, a physical and mm -hmm. clonable function. Yep. Uh, it could be hard-coded by, you know, blowing e-fuses. Another option, if you wanted to use certificates, you could do the Duffy-Hillman as a, another example. You can also physically go up and have a key loader and put it on. So there's a different ways that you can do it, and that problem still exists. But it's funny that you bring that up. So there is some ideas that we're shuffling around at work where we want to see if we can use something that does not depend on the key. Mm-hmm and maybe mix it with cryptography, um, depending, depending on how we want to do it. So like I said, it's just an idea, but as long as we can guarantee the uniqueness of the address space, it doesn't have to be based on cryptography. My research in grad school was based on computer architecture and mm -hmm. cryptography, so that clearly is what I have a propensity for. Um, but you don't necessarily have to have it for this work. But great question. Yes. So you say your algorithm supports 44 messages for a given key where each uh, RT has a specific state, right? What happens uh, after the, like, 40, like a four, 44,001? So do you need a new uh, state? And then if so, like, how, do you, how do you share that so that uh, uh, you can use more messages? Because I know in a real system, you're going to have a lot more than 44,000 messages. So how do you scale this to like, actually be used in a real airplane or something? So let me make sure I understand your question. So is your question about the state matrix? Uh, no, so uh, you say the, your algorithm only supports 44,000 messages uh, to so be. So the algorithm does not only support 44,000 messages. We decided to stop at 44,000 messages. Cool. So if you wanted to do, so we have captures that do 600,000 messages. But just for a lot of experimentation in terms of calculating the overhead, we just went with a generation number of 1,000. And in the non-MTD case, it has about 44,000. In the MTD case, I'll say between 44,000 and 60,000, depending on how many updates you send, how, frequency, how frequently you send updates. Um, but, but yeah, we can go up at pretty much as high as possible. Um, I guess what holds us back, we just have a, um, did I say this correctly? So given some constraints on the experiment, we probably can do up to 65,536 generations, and then that number times, 40, times uh, 44, more or less. It's probably the maximum number of messages we can generate. But from a pure algorithm standpoint, we could go higher if we wanted to. So the limitation is more of, of the protocol, not the actual algorithm, if that makes sense. 
So I, like, I have a follow-up question is for sure. the data you're giving the produced students to analyze and find, uh, see if they can guess uh, what numbers you're going to be sending on the bus next, have you given them just the 44,000 or have you given them the, like, the 600,000 messages? Because I feel like if you, if you were given more messages, it'd be more likely you could find some kind of hole in the algorithm. I'm going to give them 44. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, so the work is just starting up, so they haven't actually received a log today, but pretty much all of my logs, so the tool allows us to export to ASCII and to CSV, so pretty much all the logs that we have, we'll probably send them over, or we may say, here's one that's with, you know, 600,000, here's one with 100,000, here's one with 1,000, so that you can kind of maybe tell me, hey, I need more messages. If I had 10,000 messages, I could figure out X, but if you only give me a log with 1,000, I can't do anything. And so we want them to be able to say, what can you tell me if you had this many messages versus this many messages? The great question. Any other questions? Going once, going twice. Okay, well, thank you for your time.